Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Is finished. Uh, the book sales will be will man the book table outside, and uh, Andrew will be available to sign a few if you like. Right now, I'd like to invite you back. And uh, questions are on the table here. Uh, please state your name before you get up there, and also keep your questions pretty short. I'm sure there will be lots of them, and just one question. I'd like to Andrew uh, invite Andrew back up here and uh, get ready for your questions. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be on strictly on the topic that Andrew spoke about. There's many other issues that uh, uh, is concerning people, so feel free. My name is Tad Mitri. Thank you very much for your presentation. My question is about paradigm shift. Is the approach like Club of Rome of during the 80s that stopped development? Uh, there's a limit to development. That changed the whole revolution of thinking in our mind to get rid of the idea that economy is the first, or if you are believing in economic development, development must go on. Does that have to change? Okay. All right, so I'll, I'll repeat the question. The question is, did the Club of Rome have a good argument when it, which it made in the 1970s, saying that, look, this idea of exponential growth and endless development, uh, can this go on? Um, and <clears throat> first, I, I would say that the exponential growth that we have seen in our lifetimes, um, the phenomenal growth of, of everything, uh, as well as the um, availability of, of cheap stuff um, is purely a function of cheap energy. That civilizations grow and they grow rapidly when they strike it rich with cheap energy. Whether it be in the form of slaves or whether it be in the form of coal or oil. Um, they lose their regular metabolism. They get really, really big and have all of the problems associated for, with bigness. I think the Club of Rome had a really, really good argument. And they were ahead of their time saying, you know what, this endless growth thing, this linear path, that's something human beings have never done before. All right, Our path has been like this. It's never been like this. It didn't start going like this until we got hooked on hydrocarbons and started feeding them to energy machines. And then we got hooked on this idea that 
life is all about en 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 endless growth, when in fact we all know as human beings that we are born, we grow, we grow old, we stop growing, we age. Hopefully we become wise and can reflect upon our lives. But there's no such thing as endless growth in the life of any creature. Just as there's no such thing as endless growth in the life of any civilization or any society. You go through phases. But the phases are often driven by the availability of energy. Our problem right now, and this is where we're entering a crisis, is that cheap energy is over. You know, when you have to dig a hole in the ground in the northern boreal forest of Alberta, uh, and uh, you know, to, to get your oil to run stuff, business as usual is over. This is an extreme activity. This is a difficult resource. This is such a badly degraded hydrocarbon that we have to upgrade it, right? We've got to take the carbon out and put hydrogen in in order to make it into a synthetic fuel. And then it has to be go through a complex refinery before you have oil. So this is not cheap oil. This is not conventional oil. And, uh, and, and the issue, that, and even oil and gas people will raise this, is what's going to run out first, oil or money? We're not going to run out of oil. We might run out of money to, to buy oil. That is what is happening in Greece and Spain, which are oil-importing countries. That is what's happening to much of Europe. That is what is happening to Japan, which was exclusively dependent on the import of oil. And that is what is happening to the United States uh, as it has become increasingly dependent on oil exports, whether they're from Canada or from the Middle East. The debts are growing, and uh, the period of exponential growth is ending. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Henning Mundell. Um, Andrew, you you mentioned early on in your talk, um, I think I'm using the right word, that within these petro states, and let's talk about Alberta, that uh, the oil is being uh, and the oil industry is being dealt with and others are ignored. You, I think you used the word something like ignored. Mm -hmm. To me, ignored can almost sound almost benign, almost neutral. Uh, I wonder if perhaps you I might suggest that it's anything but benign. It's, uh, um, it's If you look at – I'm a former agricultural scientist. If you look what's happened in the Alberta Agricultural Extension Service over the last 25 years, sure. how it's been gutted, what's happening in our rural medical field, what's being gutted, uh, I think uh, if it were person responsible, we would say they're sociopath. It's certainly antisocial. So I wonder if you can just care to comment. Okay. All right. So the question that Henry has raised is, is this. He's, uh, in my presentation, I talked about how in Petro states – that if you're, you, you know, if you're not part of the, of the master resource um, and you are involved in other aspects of, of, uh, of, 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 of life and community and economy, that you will be ignored. And, Henry, I, I, I probably should have said, and you will be dismissed and excluded and downgraded. Um, and, and agriculture is a very good example in this province. I mean, less and less money has gone into agriculture over the years. If you track it, it's, it's gone or going. 
less money to agricultural science, less money to studying fescue grass, less money for every aspect, actually, of rural life in this province. And so where is the money going? Well, the money is going to sell uh, people on, on how great bitumen is. Or the money is going on building an infrastructure in Fort McMurray that oil and gas companies should be building. Um, they're the ones that brought everyone up there. They should be building and paying for that infrastructure, not all burdens. Um, so we, we have a government then that becomes increasingly uh, focused on just one thing to the detriment of everything else. We see this definitely at the federal level here now in Canada where we are told every day that the Canadian economy has, you know, is, is, is now one big hummer and the engine is all about bitumen. Thank you, Andrew, for your presentation. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Um, in your title, you used the word slavery. Yes. Is not slavery really the result of human greed? that one person will be subjected to that, that type of uh, treatment by another human being. And talking about, about uh, greed, uh, do you not think that regardless of whether it was oil or gold or in the olden days spices, uh, whatever happened to be uh, rise from a few dollars a barrel to, uh, to, to $98 a barrel that it is today, it's going to attract the greedy. And is it not, in order to humanize things, in order to civilize things, is it not necessary for us to address the problem of fair distribution of wealth of this world? So the question is, when I'm talking about slavery, and am I not really talking about greed, and is not then the real problem that we have to address uh, is one of, of inequality? And good question. So yes, is, is, was slavery about greed? It, it was about greed, but it was also about expropriating other people's energies to get work done, right? Slavery was shackled human muscle, all right? And then you put that muscle to work to create a surplus that other people could enjoy, that the wealthy could enjoy. And um, that was what ancient Rome was about, Egypt was about that, Babylon was about that. And most of these slaves were being used for what? They are being used to grow food. They were involved in irrigation agriculture. So they were there to work the fields, to harvest the crops, to create the surplus, the gold, that the wealthy could then enjoy. That's very much part of the case. So greed is very much a, a function of, of our, our, how we use energy. It's also, but it's more than about greed. It's also about power. It's all about power and quite often the abuse of power. All right, so the ancients had their slaves, their human shackled slaves, whom they abused horribly. And that was all in-your-face stuff. We have our energy slaves, our machines, our combustion engines, our steam engines. Uh, we have our digital slaves. We have our iPods and our GPS units. And, you know, and we, our house is full of all kinds of electronic appliances. All of them slaves. All of them there to make life more convenient and comfortable for us so that we don't have to do as much work. And 
And then you say, well, what's the problem with all this? Well, here comes then the moral problem. And it is a moral problem, and, and it has been addressed largely by religious thinkers. In particular, I would, talk, I would mention Ivan Illich, the great Catholic theologian who wrote a fabulous essay called Energy and Equity. And that essay is really all about this very issue. How many energy slaves are we entitled to? And at what point do though, does the number of energy slaves increase inequalities in our society and in our communities? And that is not an issue that we have dealt with as a people. It is one that we profoundly need to, to start addressing and thinking about. How much energy do we really need? And how much and what kind of impact does this energy then have on us as human beings? And Illich was com completely convinced that the more uh, energy a society consumed, the more complex it would become and the more totalitarian it would become over time, and also more unequal. So here's a great example of inequality. North Americans, 5% of the world's population, consuming 20 to 25% of the world's energy. Why is it a North American is entitled to 24 barrels of oil a year, while your average African is about half a barrel or less? The average person in India is around three barrels. The average person in China today at four barrels. My name is Frank Toth. Uh, thank you very much for that whole house full of wisdom. Very much overdue. Uh, the older you get, the more, more you realize how badly we're getting skinned. <laughs> At any rate, I appreciate your book, the book of the Tar Sands, especially page 11, that tells you who our prime minister really is. And uh, that copy of that should be sent to Albert, every Albertan to know where all the barking and all the orders uh, are coming from. Anyway, I have the 09-010 auditor's report where we're getting... 58, uh, pardon me, $5.8 billion royalties on $3 per gigule natural gas, and we only got $2.8 billion on oil, all right? Out of that oil, the figures of our previous uh, Auditor General said that uh, part of that $2.8 billion is still a part of the, uh, of the, the lease that uh, money's coming off the lease as the oil comes bid. And it, it says also, you keep an eye on the, uh, on the monies we pay back to the oil comes both federally and provincially. Could you elaborate on that? I know that uh, Mr. Obama, President Obama, according to the Canadian press, gave our prime minister hell for subsidizing his daddy's oil company and the rest of the oil company. It's against the trade. Could you elaborate on the, on the, on the succession of how much we're paying back out of the money that we're probably getting nothing for oil. Subsidies. Okay. All right, so the question is, how, how, how much are we actually subsidizing the oil and gas industry in this province? 
um, given that we are charging them very, very low royalties and rent in this province. And, uh, you know, as the Auditor General has noted, we have, and as I uh, presented, we have consistently not met our targets for collecting our fair share as owners of this resource. And um, that has now become a chronic problem. And yet at the same time, we're, we're constantly giving money back to the industry. In Canada, the, the subsidies that are given the oil and gas industry, um, um, and, 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 and these are the, the formal direct ones, are an order of $1 billion a year. Now, don't forget, this is a $2 to $5 trillion industry, right? Um, the, the world's seventh largest and most profitable countries, uh, companies on the planet are all oil and gas companies. And they include companies like Sinopec. Um, they include ExxonMobil. They include uh, Total. And, and, uh, and yet we are giving the money back. And in fact, uh, in places like Saudi Arabia and Nigeria and Venezuela, they're constantly giving money back to the oil and gas companies because they are subsidizing fuel prices there uh, to the tune of $700 billion a year. Um, now, there are other subsidies. Uh, I mean, we're building infrastructure and roads for the world's wealthiest companies in Fort McMurray, where really they should be building the dam road to Fort McMurray and repairing it, or they should have been building a, the dam uh, railroad from Edmonton to Fort McMurray for their workers. They should have funded that properly. They are the ones uh, that increased uh, demand up there and, you know, and... and and killed the water infrastructure, so it had to be expanded. Everything up there has had to been expanded. The companies have paid very, very little for any of that infrastructure, and, uh, and yet they're the ones using it. Um, so our approach to even development here has been, been all wrong. Um, and we would have had more controls on the pace and scale have we simply said to these companies, Rather than saying, look, hey, we're going to spend $7 billion on infrastructure, make everything a lot easier for, the, for you in this province, saying, well, this resource and, and this boom is going to tax our infrastructure to such a degree that we're going to have to tax you guys to pay for this. And, by the way, and all the royalties and rent that we're collecting from you, we're not using it for infrastructure. We're not using it for any of this stuff. It's being saved for future generations. So, don't we, so we don't get mixed up about who's funding whom here. Thank you, Andrew, uh, for all your comments and so on. Mary Shillington, uh, we had an interesting discussion at our table uh, and various expressions, some, some saying, well, you know, we've got it pretty good right now, uh, and m many of us don't look too far in the future. Uh, we're living in the here and now. Um, others are concerned about their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Others are concerned about the environment. But the general feeling at our table, I think I could reflect this, mm -hmm. uh, that um, whatever we do doesn't seem to have much impact. Uh, we elect a, a MP that many of us question how bright he is. Um, <laughs> that's being kind. <laughs> Um, uh, and and the, even our MLAs uh, don't really take seriously what our concerns are uh, 
so what can we do? How can we keep our 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 feeling less help feeling less helpless so that we can do something and have some impact? Because I'm not sure our Alberta government is even in as you said in a petro state. They're not really interested in listening to us. So how what can we actually do? So the question is, what, what can we, we do in a province where we feel, on one hand, things aren't all that bad, that we actually have, have life pretty good, which we do in this province? Um, and, but what do we do when we're confronting uh, government representatives that aren't terribly responsive to their citizens? Um, then we must get more involved. And we must not work as, in, as, as individuals, but as groups. We must organize. We must form alliances. We must form uh, um, um, uh, new ways of, of organizing to bring attention to all Albertans, you know, regardless of whether they're on the, the left or on the right or in the middle, how critical these issues are. Um, I mean, organizing meetings like this and more of them, um, let's say with, a, with solely a focus on two themes or three themes. Let's take them from Peter Lougheed. Behaving like an owner, what does that mean? What are the responsibilities of ownership? Collecting our fair share, what does that mean? Why is it that, almost, that, that you, across this province there is almost complete ignorance and apathy about the royalties, the rents, how they're collected, how they're invested, and what, what that all means in this province. Talk about that. Saving for the rainy day. Make that an issue. Hammer away, away at your MPs. Short letters, short notes. Demand fiscal accountability for oil wealth. And what, you, what you're fighting, and we, we've got to understand, I, mean, I dearly love this province. I've raised my three children here. I own land in this province. Um, but I did not understand it. I did not understand it until I started reading stuff by Terry Lynn Carl. And she explained to me how the petrostate works and the whole mechanisms of control. And... But then I felt strangely liberated when I understood that. And, you know, you've got petrostates on the left, and you've got petrostates on the right, and you've got just petrostates in the middle. Um, and uh, we're, one, we're a petrostate on, on the right that is giving it all away. I mean, you've got petrostates on the left that are trying to steal it all away for themselves, for their own, their own agendas. Um, and you've got everything in between. So now we know what we've got here. One-party rule for 41 years, we can now understand that. They've got access to the oil revenue, and they can use it and manipulate it the same way Ralph Klein did to send us all his Ralph Bucks, make us all feel good just before an election. I mean, <laughs> talk about buying an election. I mean, what, what a tremendous idea. I'm going to give every Albertan $400 and see what happens when the election rolls along. Sure enough, you know. Uh, but we now know that. We know what the problems are. The problems are is the money is being spent by government and is not being saved. So that's every political effort in this province should be about taking that money off the table, putting it back into a, sa a sovereign fund, and making 
whatever government it is, whether it's the New Democrats, the Conservatives, the Greens, Wild Rose, running on taxes, not on oil, oil loot. We got it, this thing about collecting our fair share. We've got to get that right. You know, a target of 15% or lower is ridiculous. That's shameful. That's humiliating. That's third world. So we might be comfortable now, but are we going to be comfortable two years from now when a carbon tax is put on oil around the world, when the United States, or when oil consumption in the United States continues to decline, when there's another oil price shock and oil drops down to 30 bucks a barrel, which makes everything in the tar sands uneconomic? Will we be comfortable with then when we have no savings to rely on, when we have no political smartness in this province about craftsmanship? How, how, how do states really work that are smart? Well, you want to find a smart state, and it's kind of a rare thing, of course, to do, to find a smart government. But the smart governments are not the governments running on oil money. All right? Go to a place like Denmark. They have no oil resources. Are they shrewd? Are they innovative? You bet they are. Go to, you know, and, and it's the countries that deal with scarcity and that run on taxes are the countries where you find real good statecraft and good public policy. We will not reach that point until we take the money off the table and we force our government to behave like a real government, not another representative of the oil patch. We have uh, two more questioners, and if they make it quick, they can both get it in. Hi, my name is Mark Sandylands. Thanks for coming again, Andrew. I really enjoy your talks and your books. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering if it's also partly addiction. Uh, I came across a statistic that uh, says that if you got on a treadmill, you'd have to work for three weeks on this treadmill, eight hours a day, five days a week, to produce the amount of energy in one gallon of gas or one liter of gasoline. Yep. 500 hours for a U.S. gallon. Uh, so we're addicted to cheap energy. Do you foresee any change that will uh, turn things around? Uh, will it be an, uh, an external change? And if so, what? And if so, when? All right. The question is uh, um, has to do with uh, our addiction to cheap energy and and, and what do we need to break this addi addiction, and, and what's going to happen? Well, I, I think just the uh, dramatic increase in the price of oil over the last 20 years is, is going to play a role in that. Um, and as oil becomes more extreme, more difficult to produce, it's going to become uh, capture more and more of our household budgets. And as it does so, we're going to see dramatic changes and how we consume energy across the board. This is already happening in the United States, uh, where oil consumption is now declining by a million barrels a year because many poor Americans can no longer afford oil. Um, we are also seeing, and with this, we will see a shrinkage of the middle class at the same time. The middle class is a function of cheap energy. You have a lot of cheap energy, you can afford to have a lot of people in the middle. When energy becomes expensive, you're back to the old civilization's telltale pattern of you've got the rich, and then you've got everybody else, the poor. And we, we already see that in our discussions about the 1% the and the 
Last question. Thank you, Andrew, for your wonderful presentation. And uh, like you said, you have just come to understand a lot of things by the various people that you have studied. I think that we have gotten an aha moment here as well. I would like to suggest that something that we might all do is we almost need to borrow from the uh, Aboriginal movement that's going on now, idle no more. We cannot be idle no more with what's happening to us here in our province. And so we need to get help with uh, the organizing of smaller groups, like you were saying, so that we can take this message because it's not going to get out through any kind of media other than perhaps those of us who know how to use Facebook or blogs or something, but it really does have to start happening because of what you say with with uh, oil uh, prices dropping and uh, Alison wanting to cut budgets and she wants to cut the various things that she promised for health care and schools and education. It can get worse all the time. And if we do not start raising awareness and uh, getting people to see in the next couple of years, like you were saying, that uh, it's going to be very difficult in this province. And so have you come across any groups that have been meeting that are perhaps sharing this type of information to others other than the SACPAW here? Albertans are increasingly growing more and more concerned about the economic volatility and political volatility in the province. And they are asking more and more questions. And, uh, you know, even though um, I don't support the Wild Rose Party, what I do support is their rigorous opposition to uh, the anti-democratic tendencies of a one-party state. You know, I salute them for that. And uh, and I'm I am so glad that they are there because at least it, it is a voice of, of criticism and reason and restraint for this Petro state. But the, everywhere I go, people are talking about these issues. You know, they want to behave like owners. They want to collect our fair share. They want to save for the rainy day. They want government that is accountable and representative and prudent and, and, and resourceful. They want all those things. And I've never, you know, and I, I've, I've been in this province for more than 20 years, and I'm seeing a dramatic change in the kind of conversations that Albertans are prepared to have. Your example of Idle No More, what a great, what a great expression. You know, it should wake up every single Canadian. We can idle no more. And as a people, I mean, Canadians are fat and lazy. We're comfortable. We've had a great run, you know, on our resources for the last 100 years. But we can idle no more. And, you know, the movement, that movement was started by four women in Saskatchewan who looked at the new omnibus bill, omnibus bill 45, all right, so now we have this new tyrannical kind of approach to democracy in Canada where we don't do budget bills. We do a budget, and then we tag, you know, 65 different changes to environmental or social legislation that nobody ever voted the government to change. You know, this is a subversion of democracy. So these four gals in Saskatchewan said, you know what, this is wrong and we will idle no more. 
And I would encourage each and every person in this room, pick one thing and idle no more. Thank you.